0: Well, are you awake now? Very good. I I, I planned that. So uh, for our Bible, for our scripture reading this morning, we're going to do something a little different. Um, We're going to have a dramatic reading of the book of Titus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point. But the the scripture that we're going to be reading is all going to be on the screen. So if you want to listen to the audio, uh, check out the screen and then uh, we'll get into the the book of Titus. So uh, without further ado, let's read through three chapters of the book of Titus, about five minutes.
1: Titus, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus my true Son, in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Titus, chapter 1, chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. But to teach what is good then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all.
0: Well, good morning, folks. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and uh, turn with me to the little book of Titus. Uh, If you... uh, don't have your own Bible? You can grab some Bibles in the pewbacks in front of you. The book of Titus in my Bible is uh, found on page nine hundred and sixty-five. So if you find First and Second Timothy, uh, you have Titus nestled in between the Timothys and Philemon. It's a very short book, three chapters, uh, but it has a huge impact. Uh, I'm really excited to begin this sermon series with you guys, and uh, today we're going to do an overview of the book of Titus entitled "Grace, Godliness, and Good Works." So let's pray and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. We pray that you would bless the teaching and hearing of your word. Father, we pray that you would teach us to be enamored with your grace, to be transformed by the by the uh, unmerited kindness that you have shown to us in giving us your very son to live a life that we could never live in perfect obedience without any sin, to die the death that we deserved, bearing our sin on the cross and your wrath against us and then being raised to life to give us both new life now. In eternal life forever. Your grace to us is truly abundant, and yet it's not alone, because when we truly grasp and experience your grace, we become more and more godly, and we are engaged in more and more good works. And so help us, we pray, to learn about these three things in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. So a few years ago, actually it's been several years ago at this point, uh, my wife and I, uh, thanks to the uh, kindness of an elderly woman who left her home, uh, which just happened to me to be uh, on the island of Maui, maybe you've heard of it, they're in the Hawaiian Islands, Uh, she has a home on Maui, and what this uh, dear saint did is she left it open for a vacation spot for full-time pastors and missionaries. And so when my wife and I got wind about this uh, house in Maui that was, I think, roughly about $300 for up to two weeks. Yes, $300 and you can stay two weeks. We thought we should maybe go to Maui. And so we saved our money, saved our money, and decided to go without kids, of course, to the beautiful island of Maui. Um, so for the occasion, because we kind of got our housing so cheap, so to speak, we thought that we could splurge just a little bit. Of course, we had a budget. We went through Dave Ramsey, right? We had a budget, um, but we splurged a little bit in, in a couple of ways. First of all, uh, we wanted to drive around the entirety of the island. So the locals said, if you want to tour the island, a good way to do it is to go by car, drive all the way around, and you'll get to see some spectacular things. And they said, but if you're going to do that, you might as well get a convertible. And I and I thought, yes, that's accurate. We should do that. And so I we splurged a little bit, right, and uh, got a, a nice cherry red. Brand new Ford Mustang convertible, and it was spectacular. And the island was was nice too, uh, but the car was pretty awesome. Um, But it was really nice because we were able to see um, everything, uh, you know, without limitation, so to speak. And so we saw waterfalls overhead, we saw uh, spectacular uh, uh, flowers, and we saw mountain ranges, and we saw rocks and cliffs and uh, all sorts of foliage. And it was spectacular uh, from the view of our convertible. So we toured the whole island, right, and we. Saw a bunch of individual things that were awesome. Uh, it, it was getting close to the time when we had to go home. And we had done pretty much everything we wanted to do on the island of Maui, except for one thing. Um, and that one thing uh, involved a helicopter. And we thought, well, this is probably the only time we're ever going to be on the island of Maui. So let's rent a helicopter. Well, well, not rent it. It's not like I was driving it or anything, right? Let's go on a helicopter ride, right? And so for 30 minutes, for X amount of hundreds of dollars, we uh, toured Yes, hundreds of dollars. I don't know what it was. It was expensive. Um, 30 minutes touring the island of Maui from above. And if touring it from below in the convertible was awesome, doing it from uh, a bird's eye view from the helicopter was spectacular. Because not only did you see all of the individual elements, like the waterfalls and the foliage and the, and the, and the mountains, individually, you saw it all together. You saw how it all fit together on this spectacular island of Maui. Now today what I hope to do as we begin the book of Titus is to kind of provide you with a big picture of the book of Titus from a helicopter view, so to speak. What I want us to do is to kind of climb in the helicopter and to to get an elevated view on the book of Titus, a big picture view, right, a bird's eye view about the book of Titus, so that next week and in the following weeks we can kind of return back to ground level, we can hop in our convertible, right, and we can see some specific Things uh, about the book of Titus. So, five questions. Here's a bit of a preview. Five questions are going to kind of serve as a tour guide for our bird's eye helicopter view today of the book of Titus. Number one who wrote Titus? Right? who wrote it? Number two, who was Titus? That's an important question. Number three, where was Titus? Because we're going to see where Titus was, uh, was significantly important. Number four, why write Titus? That is, why did the person who wrote this little letter to Titus, why did he write it? And then number four, how was Titus? That is, how was Titus to do his job? He was left where he was left to do a specific job. How was he supposed to do that job? Five questions we're hopping in the, in the helicopter to see a bird's-eye view of the book of Titus. So number one, let's ask and answer our first question. Who was Titus? Who was the man whom this little book in the Bible, all three chapters, was named after? Well, from the start, um, that is who wrote Titus. Uh, from the start, we see that Paul, the Apostle Paul, a guy we're probably familiar with, wrote the letter to Titus. There in cha- chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Paul... From the very get-go, we know who writes this book. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So back in that day when they wrote letters, they did it a little differently than we did because if I were to to write a letter to you or maybe send an email, I would first type your name, right? Shelly, you need to pick up the kids today from school. Trey. So I would begin with who I'm writing to. But in those days, they would start the letter with who is doing the writing. They would say, uh, Trey, your dearest husband, right? To Shelley, I'm writing to you, right? And so we began with who wrote the letter. It's very clear that Paul did that. The year is roughly uh, 63, not 1963. No, no, 63, right? The first century, 63 A.D., many, many years ago. So, what is happening in the life of Paul as he writes this little letter to a man who will uh, find out a little bit more about his name Titus? Well, here's what is happening. Paul had been in prison in a Roman. Uh, Uh, prison, so to speak, uh, for two years. So he had been held captive by the Roman government for two years and was released. We don't know specifically why, but we know he was released. And so Paul had been making the most of his newfound freedom in his newfound life, right? He had been chained for two years, and he's finally free, and he is really active. Pastor uh, Chuck Swindoll says this about Paul. Picture him as a 60-year-old man, a 60-year-old seasoned missionary. He says at this time uh, of his life, he was an an itinerant evangelist, a faithful pastor, a founder of churches, a servant of God, and an apostle of Christ. He, He writes, far from retirement, Paul actively engaged in eternal things and mentored young men who could extend ministry far beyond him. Yet he knew that he was going, that he knew that he was nearing the end of his life and wanted to create a legacy of faith for generations to come. And so Paul has new life. He's an elderly statesman of the faith. He's investing in young men so that when he passes, the Christian faith can move forward. I want us to take a look at a map really quickly just to give us an understanding of Paul's movements uh, from his time uh, of release to the writing of this this letter. Just follow one, two, three, four behind me. It's pretty easy. Following his release in Rome, you can see it uh, under number one there, he traveled to the city of Ephesus. And there at the city of Ephesus, he leaves one of his two kind of main protégés By the name of Timothy. From Ephesus, he ventures to the region of Macedonia, which is number two, where he writes back to Timothy at Ephesus the little letter that we know of as 1 Timothy. Now, from there, he sails to the island of Crete. The island of Crete is going to become significant because he sails to this Greek island named Crete and he leaves his second protege, whose name is Titus. That's the guy we're talking about. And he leaves Titus there and then he sails to a little port city called Nicopolis. And there in Nicopolis, he writes this little letter of instruction to our guy, Titus, which leads us to the first of many timeless truths from Titus. We're going to be applying this book to me and you, Timeless truth number one from Titus is simply this don 't retire from serving jesus 's church, but actively actively train the next generation. I think we can learn something here from Paul right He was sixty year old sixty, 60 years old, uh, maybe near retirement age, and yet in his mind, you don't ever retire from serving Jesus and from ever training people up in the church. While there is obviously retirement from our vocations, there should not be retirement from our service to Jesus and our service to his local church. So Paul didn't say, after spending two years in prison, he's getting up in age, he didn't say, well, I've served my time. The younger guys are, are up and coming, and, and they can just take over. Well, he, he, didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't say, maybe I should consider retiring from from serving God and and just kind of focus on golf and and fishing and and, and my family. Well, he, he didn't say that. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, may I encourage those of you here, you may feel past your prime. You may feel useless in the church. You may feel like it's time to hand over the keys to a new generation. And maybe it is time to do that, but that does not mean retiring from serving Jesus or his church. You have a wealth of history. You have a wealth of godliness, a wealth of experience, a wealth of wisdom, that those new people in the church, that younger generation, desperately needs. So don't check out on the church. Invest in the new generation strategically. Have them over for lunch. Share with them your ministry stories. Disciple them. Mentor them. Train them to be the pastors and the elders and the deacons and the Sunday school leaders and the Awana leaders and whatever it is that they do. Train them to be the best that they can be. So having seen who wrote the letter of Titus, let's move to our second question. Who was this guy? Who was Titus, right? Well, we see uh, quite a bit about who Titus was, uh, mostly from the book of Acts, a little bit from the book of Galatians. What we don't know is how Paul and Titus met. We know that they knew each other, obviously, but we don't know how they met. Most likely what happened is that as Paul was out teaching and preaching the gospel, Titus came into contact with he or his ministry, came to place his faith in Christ. And most likely, Paul had a, kind of had his a first-hand encounter with Titus. Because notice verse 4 in chapter 1. Paul calls Titus, and I quote, "...my true son in our common faith." And so Paul views himself as an elderly father to this younger Christian who he calls a son. They had a healthy relationship. What we find out, what we know about Titus, was that, number one, his history was thoroughly pagan. That is, he had no Jewish background. He didn't worship the true God of the Old Testament. He was thoroughly pagan. He worshipped idols. His mom and dad, we see from Galatians chapter 2, are called Greeks. That their Pagans, and yet his conversion was a dramatic one, turning from idol worship to worship the one living and true God and his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's interesting because what God was doing was preparing Titus to work with other converts to Christianity who came out of a similar background. He, Titus eventually ended up working with people who used to be idol worshipers just like him. He used to be uh, enamored with lax living just like him. God was preparing Titus. We see that Titus worked with Paul. And so Paul and Titus were kind of buddies. He was, a, he was a protege to the apostle Paul. And I want to point out just three kind of occasions that God used with Titus working with Paul to prepare him for his ministry. Number one. We see Paul and Titus bringing financial relief. That is, they're bringing money to the Jewish church there in the city of Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that during that time period, there was a lot of debate. Did people who weren't Jewish ethnically, did they have to become circumcised? Did they have to act like Jews? Did they have to follow the Old Testament law to be followers of Christ? That was a big question in the early church. And so what Paul does is he brings this guy who is thoroughly pagan, converted to Christ, uncircumcised, didn't follow the Old Testament uh, uh, Mosaic law. And what we find out is that the church leaders in Jerusalem accepted him as fully Christian. And it was a a pivotal moment in the life of the church. So what we see about this guy named Titus was that he was was a poster child of God's grace. He was a picture of God's grace. Secondly, we see that Titus ministered in a city that, in that day, we could call Sin City, much like Las Vegas has that title in our culture. The, the, The city of Corinth was known for its immorality in that day. And this is where young Titus cut his teeth in ministry. He ministered alongside Paul in a very difficult, hostile environment, preparing him to work in the most difficult of cultures and in the most corrupt of churches. Number three, we also see him representing Paul as he traveled back and forth to Corinth. And so what what Titus actually did, you know, in, in the Bible, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They're letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, you'll find out that they're kind of harsh letters. Paul doesn't speak very kindly to this church because there were lots of issues. Who carried those harsh letters? Well, we find out that Titus did. His right-hand man, his trusted compadre, like we used to say down in South Texas, right? He carried these letters to the troubled church. All the while, God was preparing Titus to be strong in doctrine, to be strong in truth, to be strong in the face of what was a morally passive church. And so all along the way, God was preparing Titus for his work on the island of Crete. Now, what became of Titus? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but tradition, history, church tradition tells us that he became kind of the, the, the main pastor on this island of Crete, kind of the leader of the church, I should say the church is, on the island of Crete where he died of old age. His, his predecessor, the man who followed him, wrote these words about Titus, and I quote, he says he is the first foundation stone of the Cretan church. He is the pillar of the truth. He is the stay of the faith, the never silent trumpet of the evangelical message. He even says he is the exalted echo of Paul's own voice. That's high praise of this man by the name of Titus. Pastor Swindoll, I think, insightfully sums up Titus for us, specifically Titus' experience. He says this, God wasted nothing. God wasted nothing in Titus's life. Titus was reared in a pagan home. He was mentored by Paul. He was given an internship at a bustling, problem-filled church. He was endowed with an appreciation of grace. With every step, God was preparing this young man to stand alone as his spokesman to a culture that was rife with paganism and to churches that, con- that were contaminated with error, so that leads us to timeless truth number two. Not only does God, did God not waste anything in Titus's life, friends. God doesn't waste anything of our life as well. So I want to begin to ask you, and let's begin to think about how has God used your life experiences, good, bad, or indifferent, to influence the gospel, to influence uh, people, other people for good. Maybe you came out of a life uh, of addiction. And Christ has rescued you from that, and now you are especially suited to help other peoples with that problem. Maybe you came out of a church background that was very legalistic. Maybe it was very moralistic, where grace was not a free gift, but it was earned, and salvation was something that was attained, and you came to know God through faith, and and you too are, in a sense, a poster child of grace, so that you can help people who also come out of that background. See, God didn't waste anything in Titus's life, and he doesn't waste anything in ours either. And that leads us to question number three. We've seen who wrote Titus. That was the apostle Paul. We saw who was Titus. He was a Greek pagan who was converted to follow Christ, trained especially for this island ministry. Where was Titus? I've alluded to it before. Titus was left On a small Greek island by the name of Crete. And he was left on this small Greek island with a big task in front of him. What I'd like to do is just show you a few images uh, from the island of Crete. So, from above, kind of aerial view, there is the island of Crete. It is the largest of the Greek islands, uh, and, and that's kind of what it looks like from above. Let's move on. Here's some images uh, from the island of Crete. There is a, a well-known church there. That's the the blue the building with the blue top uh, overlooking the sky. There's a, a bit of the, the coastline of the island of Crete. I think we have one more picture that's very similar. There are some, uh, some nice little uh, buildings there. And so uh, I show you that just to remind us that these are not myths, right? This is not just false history, that these are real people in real places like the island of Crete. Now, we can move on from the images. While you may be thinking to yourself, this looks like a dream location for any pastor to be left off of, right? Somebody's got to minister in Hawaii, right? There's got to be someone uh, to minister in in all these wonderful island climates. However, uh, this was far from a dream job. It was actually a nightmare of a place to lead a church. And I want to share with you a little bit about the island of Crete. The island of Crete, at the time of writing, where uh, Titus was left, was far past its prime economically. So, So don't think like ritzy and rich, think like poor and economically deprived. It was inhabited by people of, let's just say, questionable lifestyles. It was known as a breeding ground for mercenary soldiers, for rebels looking for refuge against the... Uh, the, the, the Roman government, for shifty trailers. It was a port city, so there were sailors and everything that goes along with a port city with sailors. There were island dwellers there that were, as island dwellers, I guess, can be, uh, were a bit lazy. So as I think about the location in which Titus was left, if you're familiar with the movies Pirates of the Caribbean, if you're familiar with those movies, think about the pirate island of Tortuga, right? Think about when they're, they're sailing their ship to this pirate island and it's utter chaos, right? There's fights and people are drinking and there's all sorts of loose things going on. It's not a good place. It's kind of anarchy. That's what I in, envision when I think about where Titus Titus was left on this island of, of, of Crete. Now, what do we know about the Cretans? Well, Paul tells us something in verse 12 of chapter 1. Uh, Paul quotes a philosopher by the name, name of Epimenides, who was actually a Cretan himself. And this is what he said, verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. And, and then he's quoting this guy Cretans are always liars. They are evil brutes. They are lazy gluttons. So those are the kind of people that Pastor Titus had the privilege of working with, people who didn't, who didn't speak the truth. They were evil, they were brutish, and they were lazy, and they were gluttonous. Sounds like a dream church, doesn't it? Well, not quite, right? It was apparent that the crass culture on Crete had seeped through the church walls, right? This church was, was not healthy, and it had manifested itself in in different things. First of all in verse 1 chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 10, we see that there were there were divisions in the church. It happens now, it happened then. There were divisive people, there were even rebellious people, and they were teaching a form of legalism and works righteousness. And Paul says this in chapter 1 verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. He's talking about people within the church, especially those of the circumcision group. That is, they were Jewish Christians. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they not ought to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So there were rebellious people. There were false teachers that had to be dealt with. There was also a sense of laziness and just kind of a lackadaisical spirit that had permeated the church, both in its doctrine and in its good deeds. Notice chapter 3, verse 14. Paul tells Titus, our people, speaking of the Cretans, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives, which leads us to our third timeless truth from Titus. We need to beware of cultural seepage. The culture of Crete seeped into the walls of the church. Brothers and sisters, that happens today. It happens at our church. It happens at every church. And we must be on guard. So it's worth us thinking about what from the culture, which is inherently evil or sinful or wrong, is seeping into our church, maybe seeping into our lives. Maybe it's the materialism of the day. Maybe it's our preference for comfort rather than our care for the lost. Maybe it's seeking our preferences rather than the glory of God. Or maybe it's our view of sexuality or or prosperity. Whatever it is, we must be on guard for cultural seepage in the church, which leads us us to question number four. Why did Paul write to Titus? I mean, we've seen kind of the circumstances of the book, but why did he he write him? Uh, Three reasons. Number one. The first reason Paul wrote Titus was to, to tell him to appoint elders in every city and to establish order in every church. Look at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete, he tells him, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town and as just as I directed you. So here's what likely happened. What likely happened is on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Paul preaches this sermon, right? And it's a sermon of sermons, and 3,000 people get saved. And what we find out is that those people were from all over the place, including specifically the island of Crete. So most likely, people get saved. They go back to the island of Crete. They tell other peoples about Jesus. And then there are churches that spring up. However, in these churches, there was really no sound doctrinal uh, leadership, no qualified leadership. And so the, the church kind of waned. And Paul says, Titus, the first thing you have to do is you need to appoint good, qualified leadership that can teach the Bible well and command them to train up future leaders. Secondly, he wrote Titus to deal with false teachers. We've seen this already, verse 13. This saying is true, he says, speaking of the reference to them being lazy and gluttonous and evil. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those that reject the truth. So he says, raise up leaders, Titus. He says, rebuke false teaching, Titus. And then number three, he says, st- he says, uh, stimulate right believing and right living. That is, help them think doctrinally and rightly and biblically and then help them live that way. Verse eight in chapter three, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable For everyone. This trustworthy saying that he just referenced is that is an explanation of the gospel of grace in verses three through six. So what Paul does throughout the book is he ties right belief to right living, to to believing what is right, to living what is right. And that leads us to three more timeless truths. Number one, qualified leadership is essential for a healthy church. I don't know if you know that, but a church will come and go, it will rise and fall. With its leadership, There's a reason why Paul basically sends, spends the first chapter of the book emphasizing qualified leadership, because it starts from the top down. Pastor Alistair Begg, maybe you've heard of him before, he says this. He says, No church can go beyond the level of its leadership. And so he's going to emphasize qualified leadership. Number two, heresy in the church must be dealt with. We see that from this little book. Heresy, my friends, is a cancer. It's a cancer in, the, in the, the body of the church. And if left unchecked, it will spread throughout the body with eternally devastating results. And so as Titus says, uh, Paul says to Titus over and over again, you must squash it and correct it so that people might be healthy in what they're teaching. Number three, Believing rightly leads to living rightly. This, this should make sense to us because what we believe, what we think about things, naturally affects what we do. It affects decisions that we make. It, it, it helps us make lifestyle choices. It helps us set the priorities in our life. During this study, we're going to examine what we should think about God, what we should think about Jesus, what we should think about the church, what we should think about the gospel and how that should naturally affect our everyday lives, the choices that we make both in the church and in the home and in our interactions with the world. And that leads us to our fourth, uh, fifth and final question. How was Titus, that is, how was Titus to do these three things? How was he to appoint leaders and deal with false teachers and, and help teach people both to think and to live rightly? How was he to do that? Well, I think what he does throughout the book is he takes a threefold emphasis. So if you don't remember anything else, if you're falling asleep right now, perk up, because this I want you to remember remember this, right? Titus is about three Gs, three Gs. If you remember three Gs, you remember the thrust of the book of Titus. Grace, godliness, and good works. That is what the book of Titus is all about. Grace, godliness, and good works. That's how he was to mature a church in a callous culture. Because godliness and good works both naturally f- uh, flow from the grace of salvation. So grace, godliness, and good works. We begin with grace. And then godliness and good works flow from that. I just want to show you a couple places where this is really prevalent. First, he links the grace of God and salvation to our godliness. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. uh, 11 through 12, excuse me. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's grace, right? He's talking about God's grace. Notice then what he says in verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's godliness, right? And so he says grace The grace of salvation in our life should progressively lead to godly living. Not only should it lead to godly living, but it should lead to good works. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. But, Paul says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now notice, not because of righteous things that we had done. We don't earn it. But because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his what? Grace. We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That's grace. That's Paul's summary of the saving grace of Jesus. Then what he said, notice what he says in verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things, that is, I want you to stress the gospel of grace, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That is good deeds. So, three G's grace, it leads to godliness, it leads to good works. That is what the book of Titus is all about, grace, godliness, and good works. But not only does it talk about the three Gs, but he applies the three Gs in three areas of life. So I want us to look at the chart that's on the screen behind me. If you want a copy of the chart, it's on the Welcome Center, so you don't have to take notes. You can pick it up on the way out. Paul applies the three Gs of grace, godliness, and good works to three areas of my life and your life. And that leads us to our final timeless truce. Number one, he says this, grace, godliness, and good works makes a church directed, stable, and healthy. That's this very left line, right? So Paul is going to apply grace and godliness and good works in the life of the church. And he says when a church is filled with grace, When a church is filled with godliness, and when a church is filled with good works, what happens? What's the result? He says a church is directed, that is, it has good leadership. A church is stable, free from false teaching, and a church is healthy. Secondly, he applies the three Gs not only uh, in, in, in the church life, but in the home life. He says when we pursue the gospel of grace at home, godliness and good works, It leads to a home that is sane. I don't know about you, but a sane household would sure be nice, right? We want sanity in our home life, right? Grace, godliness, and good works. Not only is it sane, but it's structured. There is structure in the home. And then number three, it's respected. That is, people from the outside can look at your home life and family and respect you because of it. Third, he applies grace, godliness, and good works to the world, that is in our relationship outside of the walls of the church, in our workplaces, right, with our friends, with our, our family, with people at the ball game, those who don't profess faith in Christ. When we are driven by a gospel of grace and it leads to godliness in our lives progressively and it leads to good works, what's the result? He says, well, first of all, uh, the world will uh, not have any accusation against us. That is, it can look at us and say, yeah, you're not perfect but man, I really can't think of anything that I have against you. Number two, it will make the world attracted. The gospel of grace is an attractive thing. Living a life of good works and good deeds is an attractive thing, right? Being godly, being different than the world, in some ways, it is an attracted thing, and then number three it, it not only leaves the world uh, without accusation against us. it not only makes them attracted but it leaves the world served that is, we help the world we serve the world i 've got Bible references for each of these uh, ref, uh, each of these results but this is the structure this is what the book of titus is all about it 's about grace it 's about good works. It's about godliness in the church, in in the home, and then in the world. So what we've done this morning, hopefully, is we've jumped in the seat of the proverbial helicopter. And I don't know if your view was as good as the view of Maui, but I wanted to make it as good as possible uh, on, on, the, on the book of Titus. We've, we've flied high over this little book of Titus, and we've seen the big picture by asking and answering these five questions. Next week and for the weeks to come, we're going to get back uh, to ground level. We're going to jump in the convertible, so to speak, and we're going to examine the details of this letter up close. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for...